Sabaydi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Radio Ohpop Talk. This is Rachna, and it's really nice to have you here with us today. Today, we'll meet the team at Kissway. Kissway is an artisan enterprise that makes embroidered pillow covers and home linens. They are made by Palestinian women living in refugee camps in Lebanon. We'll begin with Claudia Martinez Mansell. For over 20 years, Claudia has worked with humanitarian operations in Kosovo, Lebanon, Sudan, Yemen, and the occupied Palestinian territories. She's currently based in Rome, where she continues to work with the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. In 2017, Claudia founded Kisway. She'll give us some background on the craft and its significance in Palestinian culture and why she decided to start Kisway specifically within Lebanon's refugee communities. After Claudia, I'll speak with Hanan. Hanan was born and raised in Burj al-Barajni camp just outside of Beirut. Hanan works with Beit Atfal Asamud, a social services organization which works exclusively within the camps. Without Hanan's help, Kisway's work would be nearly impossible. And I must apologize to you in advance for the sound quality, particularly with Hanan in Lebanon. You see electricity and internet there are very unreliable and reception is often not ideal. So please bear with us. Kisway is a compelling organization and it was really a pleasure to speak with Claudia and Hanan. I think like me, you'll find them inspiring and resilient and worth listening to. So let's head over to Rome and meet Claudia. Hi, Claudia. This is Rachna. How are you doing? Hi, Rachna. Nice to hear you. Um, I'm yeah. well, thank you. Welcome to Radio Up Up Talk. We're really happy to have you here and uh, learn more about Kiswa today. Um, so let's start with the craft. Can you describe the technique and the motifs of the craft first? Uh, yeah. Um, the technique is um, it's a needlepoint embroidery or cross stitch. Um, and they basically use um, a grid and with different color threads they just um, go embroidering on a, on a cross stitch basis and just go making patterns. And the beautiful thing about it is that it used to be um, a tradition that women in the villages, they used to do this for, for their own garments, their dresses or items for the house. And they used different motifs or different colors or different patterns to represent their villages or the area that they were from. Um, the really beautiful thing is that each motif has a bit of a, a meaning to it. Um, you have a lot that are of nature, so it's a lot of like plant names. You have the cypress tree, you have the damask rose, or you would have animals also. Or then symbols like um, the Star of Bethlehem, the Gate to Jerusalem. So they're very um, place-based um, and in a way it kind of gives a certain geography that obviously now is missing and it's such a poetic way for, especially in our case now, uh, for refugee women to be embroidering these these motifs of a land that, that they, they've lost. Has the, have the motifs changed at all since they've moved from the traditional homeland? Initially they were a lot more geometric. 
Then, I mean, I think one of the fascinating things is that because Palestine and being like the Holy Land, it had uh, pilgrims from so many different parts of the world. No? Um, it started adopting other symbols. But I have to admit that for Kiswe, we've kind of stuck to the more geometric. We've been looking like at old pieces. There's some amazing like um, 1910, 1920 pieces that are just so geometric. They they feel so, so modern. Um, I mean, some of them like look, you know, very Bauhaus before Bauhaus. So there's something like um, really quite enchanting. So. Since women have been in refugee camps, there's even more. And there was a beautiful exhibition uh, a few years ago um, showing how motifs and the, the art has gone changing. Um, mm -hmm. And in latter parts, you do see um, more symbols like the key, which is kind of a symbol of the lost house because refugees left just with their keys, or you see the actual silhouette of historic Palestine, or you see flags. It would be great to sort of step back a little bit and talk about kind of your work with the UN humanitarian mm. missions and the different countries you worked. And why did you choose crafts and building a crafts organization mm. as a way to create an impact? I think because I, I so a bit of background maybe. Um, I currently work for the Food and Agriculture Organization and I work in the kind of emergency uh, rehabilitation department. Um, I started with the World Food Program and so I've always been in humanitarian field working a lot in the Middle East, in Sudan, South Sudan. I think when there's emergencies that take that are lasting for such a long time, different solutions are needed. For me having knowing people in the camps for such a long time, they rely on assistance, you know, they mm -hmm. they have hardly any rights and they, they're just stuck in these refugee camps. And yet at the same time have an incredible talent and incredible skill and just um, an artistry and they just need the opportunity. So I, I think in part it grew from a wish to try and do things differently. Uh, these women have so much to offer and um, they shouldn't just be um, dependent on, you know, NGO support or assistance, or or even to produce things that are that you buy for charity. I mean, I think the main things that has been driving me is to try and set up something that is not something that you buy because you want to support women who happen to be refugees. I'm completely biased, but I think they're of such a quality, and you know, there's there's like nothing like this in the market, and I think or big sort of motivation for Kiswe was the belief that I thought they could do something that would be valued for for what it is and not necessarily just to, to help them. With talking to them, the main desires or the main request was to have um, a continuous work. They used to get orders, but they, you know, you might get an order and then nothing would come for an, a number of months. So with the team, they were like, Claudia, we can get a steady work throughout the year so that we have a steady income and then to raise our salaries so those are the two things that as a start um, we've done with kids 
That's excellent. Um, and I think what you said a minute ago, it's worth emphasizing is that, you know, energy um, camps and in humanitarian crises, emergencies last a really long time, you know, and in the Russia Dia camp I was reading, for example, you know, this dates back to the early 1900s yeah. when it was first established. So it's not, it's not something that happened in our lifetime, but like well before our lifetime that people from Palestine have been displaced and um, their lives culturally and economically have been fractured. And when you're in a completely different environment and you face racism maybe or, or disenfranchisement, um, it's very difficult to rebuild, yeah. you know, and it's very difficult to kind of keep in, um, your identity intact, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's a really important thing for people to understand is that you know this is not just kind of a like a charity situation that happens to help mm -hmm. an immediate issue it's like a long-term crisis in the making and and probably a long-term recovery in the making yeah and and the other part that you said that was really intriguing to me too is that you know to to value craft you know a lot of times people think of folk art and craft as as like an aid you know, mm. a way to extend help or a helping hand and creates a very sort of unbalanced hierarchy, you know, like we're helping you by buying this thing. That, yeah. But in actuality, I think folk art is very useful. It's functional. It's beautiful. It's um, kind it lasts of has, yeah. it lasts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, no, no. Exactly. I, I, there's a, an anecdote that has really stuck to me when we started um, selling and I started selling uh, in a craft fair in um, in Los Angeles this woman came up to me and got really emotional seeing the pillows and um, and she was like my mother comes from Lebanon um, and she you know the whole family and his, uh, this woman herself um, emigrated to the States uh, in the 70s um, when the Civil War Right. And she was like, one of the few things we brought with us were our embroidered pillows. And she was like, and they're still kind of perfect. She's like, we've just had to replace the backs. The materials on the back have worn off, um, but the fronts are are perfect. And they're like, they've been with us for such a long time. It's like for 40 years they've been w with them. And um, I think we're also used to an economy that you buy something and then you get tired of it and you throw it away or you, you know, and I think we need to produce things that will last and that you can pass them on and that, um, you know, have stories. What does it mean to live in a refugee camp in Lebanon? How does this impact self-identity? First, a little background. The UN Relief Works Agency runs 12 refugee camps in Lebanon with approximately half a million refugees. Kisway works with 30 women artisans based in three camps. Most of Kisway's team lives in Rashidia camp, which has been around since the early 1900s. In Rashidia, as in other camps, houses are made out of concrete and they're often built on top of each other. There's overcrowding, poor planning, limited services, unemployment, and isolation. Claudia gives us an overview of the situation. I think it's useful to, to try to imagine how this is, because when, when one thinks of a refugee camp, you sort of often think of 
of tents or sort of the more recent imagery of what a camp is. But Rashadiya is it's like a concrete city. Um, it was built in the 20s, 30s by the French um, to ha uh, host uh, Armenian refugees. And then Armenians, either they either emigrated or there's a big uh, now Lebanese-Armenian community, or they got nationality and were able to integrate. And then in 1948, you got a, a wave of Palestinian refugees. If you walk around the town, it's just um, streets are more narrow because there's really been little planning. Um, for a, an outside visitor and also for the team who's inside, the main difference of it just being a normal town is you have a checkpoint. I mean, at the entrance of it and when you leave the town, you have to go through a military checkpoint and they check your documentation. And for people who are not from the camp, you have to ask for permission. So. Every time I go to the camp and visit, I have to ask the army for a special request for me to visit. For the women in the camp, it creates a sense of isolation because it's not easy for people to come in and visit. And for them, it, they, they are able to go out, but they don't necessarily do that that often, you know, um, in part because of expense, you know. Um, so yeah, it's quite sort of narrow to the camp and it's quite village, it's quite a village atmosphere in the camp. Um, and Palestinian refugees in Lebanon are suffer a lot of discrimination. I mean, there's a lot of different um, jobs that they're not allowed to be employed on. Um, they're not allowed to own property outside of the camp. You know what is interesting about this now is that um, uh, many of them are now like second or third generation refugees, you know. Um, I mean, most of our team is like second and maybe like Hanan is kind of third. Um, you're talking to people who, who obviously, you know, uh, are attached to, you know, to their Palestinian identity, but also are living in a country and that kind of shapes you, you know. So right. I found it really interesting now when, um, you know, there's a lot of Syrian refugees now in, in Lebanon, no? And from Syria you have Palestinians who used to live in Syria who now again have had to become refugees, so kind of twice. And it's and so you have some of these uh, coming to the camps and settling in. And it's been quite interesting because you talk to some of the younger ones especially and they're like, oh, no, no, but she's a Syrian-Palestinian. I'm like... Oh, I thought you were all Palestinians. <laughs> and they're like, well, you know, Lebanese are better at cooking. We're kind of more Lebanese, you know. So I think identity in this camps has, has a really weird shifting. Um, yes. You know, it's like a lot of nebulous. And I know, for example, for Hanan, whose mother is Lebanese, but whose father is Palestinian, but she... Um, nationality, you only get it from the father. So she's got a Palestinian refugee ID and she's kind of pulled in different directions, you know, feeling both Lebanese but not being accepted as in the country. And um, yeah, I think that with the younger generations, it's a really interesting situation. Yeah. And So in terms of, you know, running an artisan enterprise in, in a refugee camp, um, you had mentioned that Lebanon is facing multiple challenges. Mm -hmm. You know, there's COVID, the recent shipyard explosion, 
um, a dire economic crisis and the devaluation of the currency. How do you face these challenges? I've, I've had to learn a lot uh, setting this up as a business. And I think one of the things that has been most fascinating to learn, even just because now everything I buy, I just wonder if this is what I'm paying here in the shop, <laughs> how much is the person actually getting? Um, I mean, our challenge was is to make something profitable. We needed to make something which was very high-end. Um, so I think there's a challenge of just, irrespective of now of the situation of Lebanon, of just making a craft, um, a craft business. It's mm -hmm. making people be willing to pay the the kind of prices that um, that requires it. And sometimes I, at the beginning, I would get frustrated when people would be like saying that this is too expensive. <laughs> yeah. And I would be like, but you have, you're talking to me with your iPhone <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, you're wearing a, a branded clothes and you don't have an issue about paying a high price for that. And yet this item will last you for a really long time. And if you think of the hours that a woman has put into that, you're actually having like an incredible deal. As we just heard, movement into and out of the camps is highly regulated. This also impacts the movement of materials and goods, such as thread and cloth needed by the artisans. Lebanon's currency devaluation makes things even tougher. Running a craft and artisan business is challenging even in the best of circumstances. In a refugee camp with tight limits in the movement of people, goods, and funds, it's even more challenging. Let's hear Claudia explain. Two aspects that are very challenging. One is just to make it work as a business. So there's like that aspect. And then, and I think I wanted to allude to the, your initial question was also the situation in Lebanon. Because um, mm -hmm. one of the really frustrating things for us has been that um, the, the, the Lebanese currency has completely collapsed. Um, so it has depreciated by, you know, it used to be one dollar was pegged to 1,500 Lebanese pounds. If you go to the black market, one dollar gets you 8,000 uh, Lebanese pounds. But if you go to the bank, they will give you a maximum of 3,500 Lebanese pounds. So that's well, so it's of, a significant decline. Yeah, significant. So our kind of current frustration is that um, if we send them the dollars and they, the banks there will just give them a much lower rate. Um, and had it not been COVID, um, I would have just flown in and, you know, take the linen and take a bag of money, you know, dollars for, for the team. The whole ethos of, of getting Kisswell was to give the woman um, a livelihood. And, and now we're kind of struggling because of the whole situation in it. So I know with the team, um, I've just been like, we just need to weather this storm, just try to cope with it until, you know, things either improve. Um. Now let's meet Hanan. Hanan works with Beit Atfal Asmud, and she does a lot. She's a social worker who works primarily in health services. She also coordinates logistics for Kisui and other embroidery projects in the camps. 
Hanan explains that Kisway is not a typical artisan business. There are economic benefits, of course, but more than that, it's about building community and preserving a craft. The craft provides an opportunity for bonding and healing as well. Life in the camps is a daily struggle, Hanan says. It's not easy. Sometimes the electricity will go out for weeks. Living in a refugee camp takes a psychological toll. But as Hanan says, Palestinians love life and they're amazingly resilient and strong. Hi, Hanan. Welcome to Radio Akbap Talk. How are you today? Hello, Rashma. I'm fine. Thank you. It's very nice to have you here with us. And um, so you're outside of uh, you're outside of the camps right now, but you're in ba- based in Beirut. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. I'm from. Uh, I live in Burj Al camp. It's in Beirut, but the office I work in is out of the camp. Ah, okay. And so the office you work in is Beit Atfal Asamud. Can you tell us a little bit about this organization and why it's so needed in the refugee community? Yes, sure, sure. Uh, Beit Atfal Asamud is a humanitarian non-governmental organization that doesn't belong to any political party. We are just Palestinian who works for our community in the camps, in 10 camps in Lebanon. It was established uh, during the 1976, till now, okay? And it was because of the Tal Zatar massacre. There was like um, so many orphans during this massacre. And uh, uh, some people, Palestinian, Lebanese, and from different Arab regions that were supporting the Palestinian, they started to establish this organization. So they started for collecting the orphans who their parents died during this mask. Mm-hmm. And at first they made a house for them and um, they chose women who could be like uh, uh, mothers for them to take care of them. Then by years, uh, the Palestinian community in different camps started to have like different needs and this institution institution started like to expand and become bigger because you know the Lebanese government they do not aid and support the Palestinian inside the camps so we depend upon like unconditional funds from uh, all over the world so it started like with educational programs we have cages remedial classes vocational training scholarships for uh, uh, universities and also we have like a small project for slow learners and those who were not, they have intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. Also for the health sector, we have dental clinic, reproductive health and mental health program. I'm a social work actually in the mental health program and I aid in the embroidery project as a coordinator and I follow up with Kiswe as a coordinator for the project. Wow, okay. So when in terms of Kiswe, how do you facilitate their work in the camps? Okay, uh, Kiswe at first they uh, uh, they choose like the, the patterns they want, the fabric and everything. They send me the order and I follow it from A to Z, like uh, buying the raw materials, uh, coordinating with the women and the workshop itself. So I follow up with the sewing. I go to Rashidi camp and other places, it depends. Sometimes I visit the women at home. So. 
it's not like only you know a project and our work and Beit Atfal Samoon and Kisfi already knows that. Uh, we are not like you know just like a business. Where actually uh, there is a bonding among us, and it's not just like they are doing like artisan or just a craft. So I go and I just collect. No, it's more than that. Mm-hmm. We go, we gossip, <laughs> we we stand like for, <laughs> we sit for we, with each other. It's like really, you know, um, there's you could tell like there is no limit between us. It's just like women are gathering and. If, it's a kind of like a nice thing. So it's comfortable for each of us. And we, we, we tell each other, even like if it is something like I need to criticize or tell about that this is wrong or you needed to, to do it this way or I prefer this way. It's like really simple when we are dealing with each other. Oh, that's really good. And I bet that, you know, more than a business, you're a community that's supporting each other, you know, emotionally. True, true, well, true. In Kiswa project and the embroidery, embroidery project itself, the woman is, can do it at home during her uh, free time. She cooks, she takes care of her house, uh, she teaches her children when they come back from school. I imagine there's not a lot of opportunities for women to work in general. So yes, this is like not a- really, not really. Yeah. It's hard unless it is like educated. She could be like you, maybe like. Uh, school teacher or something for for honor but in most for those women who are like have families uh, Kiswi was like perfect for them to aid their husband and I think what you were saying before is really interesting and and kind of troubling too but the fact that the Palestinians who live in the refugee camps cannot work outside of the refugee camp and so you have to create the services within the camp and And then you have to actually, you know, struggle to get the supplies to support those services and find somebody within the Lebanese government that can have some support for the Palestinian people. Like like it's a kind of a daily struggle or a daily fight. Every day, like we know that we are waking up to, to survive, to do something, you know. It's not easy. I know that you work with several other embroidery groups as well. Uh, what is different about Kiswe? Okay. Uh, other, other like uh, groups, uh, they just, you know, follow certain patterns and they want it like identical, just like a machine copying. And this would limit a woman like, you know, from um, like expressing themselves. For most the women uh, in the group and on our team, they always tell that this is kind of um, uh, what call it? like they feel this is like um, kind of healing for them when they do the embroideries. So they do it with passion. So when they are working with Kiswe, with Kiswe, it's not like stressing for them. They are creating. We are having like you know, okay, it is all all patterns, all Palestinian, but they coloring it's not identical we are not copying we are not machines like each woman do it in it in her way we do like mistakes and these mistakes become like uh, you know like like a spark a kind of fire so they it's enjoyable for them you would never find a cushion that is exactly the same pattern as the other even if it is like the same pattern you could see the coloring is different yeah i didn't i didn't realize that that's really nice um, to hear 
You know, um, Hanan, I wanted to ask you, like, you know, we only hear what we hear on the news. The Middle East in particular, you know, the whole kind of struggle of Palestinians is always seen very politically, and then it just stops there. But there's so much that goes on socially, culturally, psychologically. What is something that you can tell us about growing up in in that community and in that time and space that you feel like the rest of the world is not really aware of? First of all, the first thing that I would think of, that we are Palestinian only think of returning to our homeland, Palestine. After all, it is ours. Um, mm-hmm. these, these refugee camps, we are thankful for all the countries that they were able like, you know, to make us settle in their countries. But we are totally, you know, refusing to be just living like that. We are people who like, you know, we, like, we, love, we love life and we want to live. We're educated, uh, even like if, if you get inside the camp, we are not people who just like, eat, you know, eat uh, weeds or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we go out, we live our life, we go to restaurants when we, you know, when we, we are able as I told you, we live our life, even we survive, we struggle, even if the Lebanese government or any like, you know, other government who were like pres- having pressure or stressed us, whilst they were able like, you know, to, to complete our studies. We have so many university uh, graduates. The Lebanese government itself, it will not make it easier for us to live outside the camp. There is always like something like, this is Palestinian, just like we're not criminals, we're not terrorists. We are people, we are humans. And at least we look for our rights. At least we, uh, like, at least they need to show us respect and do not just have this stereotype. If you are Palestinian, you are just like that. I think it's really important to, that people understand the context, mm-hmm. the context of the work, you know, that this is, this is a very, um, this is a very unusual situation, a very desperate situation, but yet there's this amazing resilience amongst the communities to, to like you said, you know, like we want survive, to survive through, through, through. We love life. We love, we're not desperate, <laughs> even from the things we fight every day. Seriously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know humans are so crazy. Like, you know, you can have everything and you can have nothing. But you still, like, all the emotions are the same, you know? True, true, true. And this brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening in. It was definitely sobering, but also very heartwarming. One thing I'd like to mention is that the embroidered pieces are like family heirlooms in Palestinian families. Unfortunately, many of the Kisway artisans don't have any of their own heirloom or old family pieces anymore. Claudia is hoping to find time and resources so that the artisans can create pieces for themselves. If you'd like more information on Kisway and Beit Atfal Asmud, please follow the website links provided in the description of this episode. Beit Atfal is supported through private donations. If you'd like to donate, please follow the instructions provided on their website. Any thoughts or feedback, please email me directly. Thank you again for tuning in and for supporting Radio Okkap Talk. 
Please do share this and other Radio Opak Talk episodes within your community. Thanks again and see you next week. Kapchai lai lai.